Hi everyone, thank you for joining in. My name is Iman Pracharya. I'm Senior Global Product Marketing Manager at Kaijin Digital Insights. I will be your host today. On behalf of Kaijin Digital Insights, we would like to welcome you to our Hereditary NGS Clinical Summit Series. Welcome back to the participants or the audiences who participated in the part one, which was on October 12th. And thank you so much for everyone who joined us today. Here's a legal disclaimer for any diagnosis, prevention, or treatment of a disease. For up-to-date licensing information and product-specific information, please visit our website, www.kaijin.com. So the part one of the summit was on October 12th, as I mentioned, where our Kaijin experts discussed tips and tricks on how to streamline and scale components of NGS analytical workflow for hereditary applications and how every clinical lab can be empowered to closing the gap in clinical, clinical exome completeness, improve data analysis with precision, interpretations, and reporting with confidence. Our experts discussed secondary analysis, then talked about into variant reporting, confidence, trust using augmented molecular intelligence, and finally, they talked about a high-quality genomic mutation database, which is HGMG. The recording for the part one is on available on demand on our TV Kaijin Bioinformatics website. Please use the registration link for the part one to, the, to listen to the previous session. Some housekeeping items for, for now. During today's webinar, all attendees will be on listen-only mode to avoid any background noise during the presentations. If you accidentally get kicked out during the webinar, please use join using the same link. As for this on 24 platform, you will see several windows on your browser. There's a slides window, which is showing our presentations. However, today's session is discussion only, so feel free to maximize the media player that shows the speaker view. You will have the options to minimize the presentations window. You can also, to some extent, enlarge other boxes by clicking and dragging the edges. In this on 24 platform, there is also going to be a Q&A box called Ask Questions. If you have any questions to our presenters or regarding our solution in general, let us know in the Q&A box. You will also have several possibilities to open other windows at the bottom of your screen. They will open up when you click and disappear when you click again. And now, before we get started, we wanted to know from you, what do you see as your top three challenges in analyzing um, and interpreting large hereditary and exome panels? I have just launched a poll right now. Uh, please uh, take the poll. It's the multiple um, options poll, and we'll take it from there. The theme of the Hereditary Summit is analyze with precision and interpret with confidence. We would like to proclaim that how our clinical content can help you and hopefully make your work in the analyzing and interpreting large genomic and exome and panel accurately and efficiently with confidence. We are the recognized global leader in bioinformatics and clinical bioinformatics space. We have delivered over 3 million clinical patient cases over 90,000 plus users globally and 26 million curated findings. So that's a little bit of our history. And we are not here without you. You helped us achieve to be in number one. We have been doing this for over two decades. And what has enabled us to be the number one here is the approach we are calling augmented molecular intelligence. The reality is that there's a lot of hype about AI and machine learning and NLP curating and building the knowledge. But in heart of everything, what we do is delivering trusted data that people can be confident in making decisions, no matter whether it is at the research level, in the clinical or variant scientist level, or in the data science level. And the key is that we start looking at a lot of this hype around AI, etc., is about quality. Here in Kaijin, we use machine learning and NLP to rapidly identify information. And with human experts, where we focus on leveraging to review, validate, and augment that information into high-quality knowledge base 
that can be trusted to make accurate and confident decisions. In today's discussion, we hope to address these challenges and discuss emerging scientific and clinical trends in germline NGS testing, which will provide us insights into leading laboratories uh, address bottlenecks in their NGS data pipeline, tips on how to solve process inefficiencies of critical workflow component, including variant curations, interpreting rare or novel variants, and AI-powered hereditary disease diagnostics to close the uh, gap in clinical system competence. The moderator for this today's session is um, Dr. Catherine Bankers. Uh, Katie, I will uh, request you to take the session ahead. Katie, for some reason we couldn't hear you. If you wanna turn your mic on, maybe. Yes, turning on the microphone helps. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Iman, for that nice introduction. We have um, a great lineup of featured speakers today. Uh, thank you all for for participating. Uh, we hope to get a lot of good dis have a lot of good discussion and get some some great questions from all of you. Um, I would like to actually pass then the um, the microphone kind of onto our panelists, uh, starting with Dr. Lisa Vincent. Um, would you please introduce yourself? Hi, yes, I'm Lisa Vincent. I'm a board certified geneticist, molecular and cytogeneticist. And currently I'm a senior laboratory director of Oregon Health and Genomic Platforms at Natera. Great, thank you. Um, and Dr. Atil Biskin, would you um, would you go next, please? Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Dr. Atil Biskin. I'm a medical geneticist and the head of the Genetic Diag Diseases Diagnosis and Treatment Center, where we also do the testing and also outpatient clinic. Great, thank you. Um, and then Dr. Anna Krivokucha. Thank you, Katie, and thank you for having me today with you. Uh, my name is Anna Krivokucha, and uh, I work at the Institute for Oncology and Radiology of Serbia. My background is molecular biology. I have PhD in genetics, and I also have a master's degree in bioethics. Uh, I am head of the Department for Hereditary Can uh, Cancers Genetic Counseling at my institution. Wonderful. Thank you, Anna. And then last but not least, we have um, Dr. Dan Richards with us. Dan, oh, would you... I Clinical Global Product Management at Kaijin Digital Insights and uh, have a background in computer science and human genetics. Great. So we have um, a, a fairly diverse uh, group of panelists today, and um, hopefully that will lead to some lively discussion. Um, I would like to start with a question about your, your current workflows. Um, what you're currently using, and also has this changed? Um, have perhaps the panel sizes increased over the past recent years? Um, and if so, um, what was the reason for for adding genes to your panel? Um, and what challenges did this present? Uh, Lisa, I would like to start with you, please. Okay, great. So um, currently at Natera, we offer both carrier germline screening for carrier testing, as well as diagnostic testing for both hereditary cancer, as well as complex renal disorders. And so over the last couple of years, we've primarily used uh, targeted specific panels for these particular assays because the gene lists are fairly small. But as we move forward, um, we can see expansion even of carrier testing to a large extensive number of genes and so as we gain that information and continually add more genes to our panels, we find interpretation and looping those genes into our interpretation processes is very important. And so we need rapid curated information as quickly as possible so we can keep up with our product needs. Thank you. Um, maybe Anna, you could continue. Sure. Okay, so we are Hereditary Cancer Center, and we initially began with a limited number of genes for hereditary cancers, but we expanded our panels shortly after starting performing NGS. 
because of the growing demand for polygenic testing for various hereditary cancer syndromes, since the existence of intermediate and lower penetrance genes in addition to high-risk ones were uh, revealed. Uh, so it became imperative for us to transition to more extensive panels. Presently, we employ diverse panel sets that we customize actually according to the needs of our patient. And uh, based on their personal and family history, we actually customize these panels. Exome sequencing is still not part of our current practice and it's uncertain whether we will incorporate it in the near future. We had considered it, clinical exome sequencing, but it became evident that it would impose more challenges than benefits uh, for us in our context right now, so we continue to rely on our specialized panels. And uh, the reason for this decision currently is that at present this analysis, I mean uh, whole exome sequencing, doesn't align with our specialties requirements right now, which doesn't mean that we uh, we'll think about it in the future. So, customized panels in our institution now. Great. Thank you, Anna. Um, Attil, would you um, let us know your, your current workflow and challenges you're facing? Yeah. Uh, our actually approach is more comprehensive and a little bit complex, right? Uh, and our extension is not only limited for the gene panels. The extension is also including the testings that we have been performing in numbers and in wide range and so on. Because we are also giving an outpatient clinic that also consists of from single gene testing to a whole exome sequencing that actually we require it much more in the most recent years that due to the, this changing demographic patterns that we can't manage all kind of uh, diseases that we see in our outpatient clinic. So even our panels have been increasing and extending, but also the use of whole exome and the, even the whole genome sequencing that we started to perform in the last three years. So we're, everything is extending in a way that makes all our works much harder and harder. Thank you. Thank you all. So um, maybe kind of to summarize what I've heard is that basically all of the panels um, have expanded over the years. Um, and even for, for at least some of you, that the number of tests or the scope of the tests have also changed and expanded over the years. Um, and is it fair to say that, um, like Lisa, that, that you, Atil, or Anna also see that interpretation then of this expanding number of genes becomes a challenge, um, the amount of data and information coming in, or, or what do you see as your greatest challenge? Who's going to go first? Me? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, my personal opinion is no matter uh, which type of test do you perform, uh, it's always a struggle to classify a variant. Uh, in case you find something that is rare, that is population specific, that you see only once, it's really difficult. So I think that uh, we still, I mean, we are better and better as the time goes by, but we still struggle with variance interpretation, even when we have all tools in hand, softwares and help, but we still see discrepancies in variant interpretation, even among labs that are like right near, near, nearby. So I think that is the difficulty that we all see and that it's going to be more and more emphasized when we uh, start performing whole and whole genome sequencing. No. Thank you. Um, and do you, I guess quickly maybe Atil, is, would you agree with that? Uh, as Anna mentioned, that means that we are getting better and better, but it also comes with a curse. And uh, this curse is actually when we try to diagnose, that means that we follow up everything, the most recent developments, most recent research and everything related to the patient uh, to do the diagnosis. But even when it comes to rare diseases, rare variants, rare population-based data, that's really make it much harder to make an interpretation, uh, even the classification only a single variant or a cumulative effect might relate to the disease progression or the perpetuation of any disease that comes from common disease to rare disease that doesn't matter what we're taking care of. Thanks. 
Um, and I guess Sometimes maybe it's only one variant, variant that you need to get stuck. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's only one variant that can get, I mean, you, you just do not know what to do with it. No matter what test have you performed before, it's just one that can give you headaches. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and I guess what do you what do you think about um, about artificial intelligence? Um, is it helpful in in the area of clinical interpretation? Atil, maybe you could start with this one. Uh, actually, artificial intelligence is you know that it's the development of computer systems uh, that only still let us to perform a already well-established knowledge-based analysis. And this AI, when you think about these genetic diseases, is really helpful for us for the classification or reclassification or the reanalysis instead of when you first identify a like a something, a variant of unknown clinical significance or a novel variant that you might face off. Uh, so in that situation, still it's in the development level. When you think about an internal medicine, we, there, we have been performing an internal medicine area since Hippocrates, but we're still trying to manage each case individually. And when you think about the genetics area, and this is only the last two decades, and the database that this AI is still using is under development. And as far as we go, this AI will help us much more. But still, we're in the beginning area. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So you would say AI could be helpful, but probably um, it, it's it's a long way from being the answer at the at the point of care. Um, Anna, do you want to take that up as well? Yes, I generally agree. <laughs> I think that we are in a way to incorporate AI more and more in our practice, but I think there. Um, there are fields right now where we can use AI, such as genetic counseling for, for hereditary cancers, for example. And I think that we have a lot of variants like AI. And I think that within this, uh, this field, I think that application of, uh, uh sort of, uh, tools or machine learning or AI, uh, tools is actually required. So I am uh, agreeing on that, that we are not going to be able to use all of it right now because it's still in the phase of development. But some parts of our practice and of our everyday work, I think we could use a lot from AI right now. Even. Thanks. And Lisa, I would, I would like to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, so I think AI is going to be super important as we move forward in the future, um, because as our knowledge bases are increasing, as mentioned by both Ms. Till and Anna, it's it's hard for us to keep up with that. And so in order to really move the field forward, we have to keep up with all of the literature, all the ongoing research, all the curated knowledge that we will have accumulated over time to help the computers feed that into us. So we have all the resources at our fingertips to make the best assertion possible. Um, in the event that AI can't do it for us, of course. Um, so I think those curated knowledge bases, as we learn more and achieve more, and having it at the fingertips, either for talking to a patient, as a genetic counselor, having that knowledge right in front of us is going to be necessary. So we need that upfront knowledge of what is known today um, as soon as possible in order to really improve patient health care. Thank you. Um, I guess... As um, as we do have Dan here, I know Kaijin has been working quite a lot with um, with incorporating AI and trying to figure out how it would best be used. I wonder if you if you could say a few words as well about your thoughts about AI in in clinical interpretation. Sure, it's uh, a rapidly developing area, which is, is quite a bit of fun for the Kaijin uh, development team here. I uh, found that it's useful in a number of areas for customers of our Kaijin Clinical Insight Genetic Interpretation product in, in a number of areas, um, one of which is uh, although we have over 100 scientists that are constantly curating newly published literature and information to make sure we have a complete and accurate uh, review of which variants that our customers detect in their genetic testing are, are observed in which uh, articles are reporting on patients, 
I would say on it's difficult to do that for the whole clinical uh, genome at scale because there's a lot more smaller hereditary um, panels, for example, than people doing uh, clinical genome, for example. Uh, so in terms of making it cost-effective to do that level of high-quality, comprehensive, uh, and accurate uh, genetic curation of the literature for all genes, that, that is uh, something we'd like to do, but right now, and given where we are in the market, uh, it isn't practical. So we've used uh, artificial intelligence for a long time, machine learning techniques as well over the years to help um, make this core competence we have of curating the genetic literature at scale a, a very efficient process. What we found is uh, using some of the more recent AI techniques, we've extended what we provide in the product to variants that are detected in, uh, only by the AI. But one of the challenges with uh, information just detected by AI is it's sometimes wrong. <laughs> so we don't want to provide wrong uh, information to our customers. So one area we've integrated is for um, genes uh, with variants beyond those that are the routinely tested genes, which we, we fully manually um, review and for completeness and correctness and accuracy. We've identified, um, you know, many articles through AI alone that we haven't put through our manual review process but now provide to our customers indicated as such so they, they know there's a risk that the you know particular gene variant might not be fully uh, accurately uh, uh, found in the, in the article even though the AI thinks it's in there uh, sometimes we get the nomenclature mixed up or the gene mixed up with the nomenclature that kind of thing so uh, but we've done that in a way that we've uh, developed to indicate the confidence in the accuracy from the AI extraction so we've uh, avoided the, the low confidence information and just provided to our uh, customers in, in this uh, clinical insight tool the AI uh, literature references, for example, that we have high confidence are, are correct using a wide variety of uh, qualities of articles, like how many genes are mentioned in the article, that kind of thing, for instance, to, to sort out what's confident versus little confident, among other things. Um, another application of AI we found helpful for, for our, our customers is um, the context of articles. So AI is very good at identifying, okay, is this article about uh, a tumor or is it about the hereditary disease or particular symptoms mentioned for patients in a hereditary disease case report article, for example. So we use AI to collect that information about the disease context of every article and provide that to our customers uh, in a way that's also uh, leverages the Kaiju knowledge base or strengths on the computational side. So, for example, if you run across the, in, the, in our tool, you know, a variant that has a lot of literature, often if you're in a hereditary uh, context, there might be a lot of literature there that is uh, secondary findings and other things uh, or passenger mutations and tumors that are less relevant. You just sort of want to find, uh, is there a report of this variant in a um, germline context or ideally germline context with similar symptoms if you're doing clinical exome to the patient you have uh, uh, the genome of in front of you to interpret. So we found that, that uh, you know, uh, using this disease context, which we provide in our, so to speak, bibliography for every variant that's extracted with AI, by making it computational with a single click, uh, our customers can then immediately identify of, of the many articles, or even if there's just a few, are any of them uh, consistent with the disease context they're looking at their a patient sample in, uh, which is, is super helpful to, to streamline the review process uh, when there is literature available. Uh, and that is one of our f fundamental goals. We're trying to make sure uh, folks using uh, QCI for clinical interpretation uh, have a complete and up-to-date view of, of all the relevant literature evidence uh, available for, for the variants that uh, they detect in their clinical exome samples. We try to be as complete and comprehensive as, as possible. Uh, and just very quickly, one third example we found is uh, for a clinical exome where there's a variety of symptoms in a patient, and you're trying to identify is there a candidate uh, disease mutation that may be particularly consistent uh, with uh, the, the symptoms in, in, a, in a gene that can get to a disease diagnosis perhaps. Uh, we've used AI more recently to tune our um, classification algorithms to improve the positive predictive power based on back-testing against thousands of published uh, clinical exome-solved cases. Uh, and now it, it, what we provide in QCI is, is very um, powerful, uh, you know, informed ranking, so to speak, of clinical exome cases. So when a uh, uh, customer comes into the tool, they have a, you know, a genome uh, and they have 
symptoms, and they're trying to figure out, okay, what is, is there likely a diagnostic variant in this case? We could provide a, a, a ranked list of candidates that are very well aligned with uh, biological principles, uh, both on the quality of the variant and the you know, genotype and that sort of thing, as well as the symptoms matched to the disease that that gene may be uh, uh, able to, to uh, trigger or cause. So, uh, anyways, those are a few AI areas. I think the the prediction is mentioned of you know <laughs> still a little ways off in terms of getting that accurate. Where uh, you know an a, a AI algorithm could predict a variant is, is pathogenic, and people would just trust that it it's it, it's right. You know, there's a lot of black box stuff uh, in, in some of those prediction methods that, uh, although overall they're they're pretty decent, uh, often they can be very wrong too. So it's very hard for uh, for one to just trust them uh, uh, in general. But they, the predictions with AI, the newer ones, are, are interesting, and I think they complement other legacy uh, or older prediction methods like SIFT and Polyfen and and other. Uh, uh, prediction methods about whether a variant may be uh, inactivating or, or create a loss of function. Uh, I think there's uh, quite a bit of development in the last year in, in terms of improving some of the predictive power of, of those methods using AI as well. So there are a lot of interesting areas that we're continuing to monitor and build on in, in our offering. Thanks, Dan. That was a nice comprehensive answer um, regarding AI. So I'm wondering also, it's not exactly AI. Um, but it is uh, a computer um, algorithm that's being used um, in in QCI and in many other platforms to um, to to make a um, a pathogenicity call. And I'm wondering what your what your view is um, or what your adaptations are, perhaps to the um, ClinGen guidelines. Um, Versus the ACMG guidelines or the, or the or the combination that's that's um, that's being proposed across um, across different um, organizations. Uh, Lisa, maybe we could start with you. Yeah, sure. Great. Actually, I'm pretty heavily involved in a lot of the clinical genome activities as well as um, the next version of the ACMG AMP criteria. And so I think as we move forward and you know, we start to refine a lot of these classification criteria, it's really helping us zone in on those gene disease relationships that are we have a lot of knowledge about. And so we want to take advantage of that if at all possible. Historically, it's just been about curating that information and being able to store it in a reasonable way that we can access it and um, have it standardized. So I think as we move forward, um, it's going to be really critical that we build this into our systems because it helps us get to the real specificity um, and sensitivity we need for that gene disease relationships that we find. And it will only improve our capabilities of performing AI and automated classifications in the future as we really start to refine um, our knowledge bases. And I think the clinical genome is effort is really working towards that, really helping us curate information and set like at least the baseline for variant classification in the future. Thanks. Would anyone else like to to comment on that? I actually agree, Lisa, for that situation because I mean this is a base of development of computer systems, and they are not a comprehensive solution, but they are something that is able to perform tasks that we give them and it really helps us uh, for doing time consuming things and the other stuff and for the standardization it's really important i think for all of us to use this kind of classification systems because we still even in europe and us there are still consequences between the classifications uh, not only limited to hereditary but also for the somatic like like, like they have the OncoKB in US and we have the SCAP in Europe. So this kind of discrepancies should be overcome with AI. That's what I believe. Okay. Yeah. And I guess that was kind of a part of a follow-up is, do you think it's possible to standardize um, these kind of classifications? It sounds like yes, in the future, perhaps with, with the help of AI. Anna, do you have any, yes. any thoughts? Yeah. Yes. 
Okay, so I, I agree with uh, with all of you. I think that there are many published guidelines describing rules and recommendations for finding variant pathogenicity or actionability for somatic. But putting these guidelines into practice is difficult. And we've been seeing a numerous, let's say, uh, revisions and adaptations, even from specific countries. So I've seen in countries that they have their own, um, you know, revision of a guideline and they put it into their practice. And that's why we have all discrepancies. Sometimes, even if you have all the guidelines in front of you, they just tell you what to do, but not how to do it. So I think AI will help in the, the part of how to assign evidence. Sometimes you struggle to assign the evidence even if you if you see it. So you're not sure whether to assign it or not. Uh, and I believe that the, the, we, we have to find a way to, to uniform all these guidelines. And I believe that we are on a good path, but I think we, we still we still we will still struggle with it. Yeah, thanks. Um, and I guess sticking with you, Anna, I know from, from previous conversations that we've had, um, you, I think, maybe are, are under the impression that AI could also be helpful with um, with counseling, for genetic counseling. Could you maybe expand a little bit on that? I think it's the area that we can, as genetic counselors, can benefit the most right now because we can... I mean, we, we have to work on it, but we have to make these AI tools um, incorporated into our practice because, uh, uh, first of all, AI can enable more people to access genet assess, uh, genetic counseling. We all lack genetic counselors in every country in the world, so these appointments are hard to get. So AI can streamline workflows for genetic counselors. They can automate routine tasks such as gathering patient's history, for example. Sometimes it takes like an hour for a patient just to gather patient's personal and family history, assisting with scheduling, automating notes writing, aiding in research. I think we, we should work on that because we can, uh, you know, uh, enable more people and more patients to access genetic counseling. And I think AI could help drastically reduce the wait times for genetic counseling appointments everywhere in the world. And I've seen a lot of uh, uh, papers published recently on these tools that that uh, are being developed for this. And there are still struggles. They say it, take, it takes like two or three years to make an AI tool that will help, help in genetic counseling. But we are getting there. And I think it's, it's, it's going to be a huge step forward for, for us. Thanks. Um, I guess that kind of leads me to a next question question, which is about um, in using clinical decision support tools, uh, what what would you like to see incorporated? What what would you see as, as the most practical, that, that something that could be incorporated that you would like to see? Um, Atil, maybe we could start with you. Uh, thank you. I think AI has, has already demonstrated significant utility in many areas. Uh, when it comes to genomics, especially within this clinical genomics that what we all perform in here, uh, we should consider it using, uh, most probably to help us is for the reanalysis or reclassification of the variants that have already been identified in like three years ago, three years ago, a patient from a three year ago or like five years ago, because when we even we try to do our best, it's not always possible for the genomics laboratories to do all the reanalysis performing for every patient, like once, even once in a year. It's impossible for me, actually. Even for my lab stuff, it's impossible. When the patient comes to our, our patient clinic and asks for reanalysis, it's okay, we can do that. But when something changed in the data that we already had from like uh, a whole exome sequencing data from 2009 that we have performed on those years, but we really didn't know that we also sequenced the uh, like mitochondrial genomic data already been ended in there. We didn't know that since 2015. <laughs> and then we started to analyze that. And this kind of AI really helps us for like uh, giving red flags 
special for us for specific variants because it's not as easy like a newborn screening progress it's much easier because you are performing like a single gene analysis and you are checking a specific variants the patient carries or not but it's not always the case so it's really important to give this flagships or the flaggings for this kind of uh, reanalyzers. It's really important. That's what I'm expecting, actually. <laughs> <laughs> good. I, I think we have good news for you then. Um, but we'll get to that, I guess, after hearing maybe from Lisa and then from Anna about about what you would like to see or, or what you find uh, would be beneficial to have included in, in this type of software. Yeah, I think Attil kind of hit it on the nose is when you know, when we're in doing a current active case, it's very easy for us to know that we're up to date. However, for all of our historical cases and making sure that we get the most up-to-date classifications living in our system for other variants and being able to return those results when we have new knowledge back to those patients and inform their healthcare is very difficult for us. We can only do it on an ad hoc basis typically. Um, you know, so we really need a system that flags us when there's new data available for um, the database as a whole, not in a case-centric way, but how can we look at the data that we have and build upon it to learn more knowledge. Um, I think another additional thing that um, we all kind of skirt around is really clinical information, being able to get to a single ontologies or getting our whole entire um community to using integrated um, ontologies to help us gain that clinical information that will then help form and then feed AI is also very important. And so we really need to figure out ways to better integrate with EMRs um, and or obtain that information from the EMR systems and put it into clinical laboratories' hands because even hospital laboratories have this issue. Um, even if we have access to the clinical information, it's still that we have to parse through it. There are so many records based on different specialists and things like that. So if we can get um, a better capability of integrating the EMR and our actual clinical phenotype information connected to our genetic data um, and be able to utilize AI to actually find more information about the variants that are present in those patients. I think that is very critical as well. Thanks. That's a good point with the, with the unification of the project. Yes, I agree with everything both uh, of, of you said, uh, Lisa and Atil, and uh, I believe that uh, when properly validated, clinical decision support software has the potential to reduce the variability that we and discrepancy that we talked about in variant interpretation. And what I would like to see is everything you told before, it's the amount of information that we have available. And uh, if we are able to incorporate the information into the AI systems and uh, uh, to have the information, to get the information from the constant stream of daily publications, it's just humans are not able to, to just follow up everything that is available online every day. Uh, I think that is going to be uh, the most important thing. And of course, what Lisa said, the way to incorporate all the information with the with the clinical clinical information, uh, genetic information, phenotypes is going to be uh, crucial in the AI system. Great, yeah. Thank you, thank you all for your input on the on that. Um, and I think Dan, you have a lot of a lot of information, um, not only on perhaps like an alerting system, how to how to maybe go about incorporating some kind of a reanalysis red flag, say. For, for either prior cases or for cases that you haven't looked at in, in a certain amount of time, um, but also maybe for ontology, um, how to, how to go about finding, finding the best, um, match or including maybe lots of different systems. And yeah, let me touch on that briefly. I think, uh, uh, number of aspects to, to doing this well. I think, uh, as alluded to earlier, one of the challenges is um, the, the community agreement on how best to classify variants. Uh, so the ACMGV4 uh, guidelines in, in the draft code right now is something we're actively working on. That changes from a uh, 
menu-driven, you know, combination of a criteria gets you to a pathogenicity classification to a points-based system, which is closer to a statistical uh, type of approach uh, or you have a probability, but it's not, not quite there. And it does change how uh, certain variants would be classified in the benign to, to pathogenic sense, um, which as a community as a whole, I think we want to want to make sure pathogenic means a greater 99% probability that variant is disease-causing and, and benign, likewise, uh, very confident that it's it, it, uh, harmless. And so, you know, as a community, I think trying to get the the classification right is, is one important aspect to variant alerting or, or reclassifying previous variants uh, in a way that's useful. I think that's one of the challenges. Uh, many of our customers that use QCI to look at older cases, as mentioned, and uh, one of the strengths of, of what we provide is since we curate all this evidence uh, and have algorithms in the product itself that compute the uh, ACMG pathogenicity classification and amperes and that sort of thing uh, automatically based on the currently available evidence, or rather than having somebody curate it and manually decide it, we sort of take a computational approach that's fully transparent to the supporting literature and other integrated sources of evidence. Uh, we provide a, a constant, up-to-date view of what uh, the product knows about uh, any given variant at, at any instant in time when a customer is looking at it. So when when a, a previous uh, case is opened and sort of uh, review it, uh, you can see with a, like a little new label tag if there's a new criteria, new evidence uh, for a particular variant of interest that may have changed the, the classification relative to when it was originally viewed. The um, Alerting aspect is something we're actively working on. Again, the challenge there is uh, it's unfortunate that, yeah, still uh, for clinical exome, uh, at least 40% of cases go unsolved. Uh, some of those might not be genetic, of course, but, you know, there's also many that uh, may have mutations in genes that uh, are not yet established as clinical validity with a particular disease. But, you know, over the course of a year, uh, there's many genes. Uh, that are established to have clinical validity and cause other rare disease uh, syndromes that uh, at the beginning of the year don't. So there's there's active discovery uh, every month that we integrate and provide in, in the product as well in terms of new gene disease associations uh, and, and variant uh, reports in clinical cases for those diseases. And so, yeah, we do want to make sure our customers have clinical exomes can, can gain insight into, okay, do they have a prior case uh, that... Uh, has a mutation that uh, is now believed to be pathogenic or likely pathogenic. And so that's, that's the, the main need there is trying to not uh, provide too many alerts, <laughs> so to speak, so things that uh, maybe uh, just change slightly but probably are not worth re-review um, come up. We just want to make sure that uh, those that are maybe the most compelling or for customers who do want want to, to know about them, uh, can review them in a in a timely manner and and, and an effective way, in a streamlined way. So that that's something we we anticipate uh, coming out in the uh, uh, upcoming release here. But uh, uh, it's a very uh, interesting application as well as of using um, computational methods to to help streamline uh, the review process and update process to get uh, patients we we all serve uh, uh, results uh, that are as, as timely and accurate as possible. Yeah, and I think that you bring up also a good point, right? You don't want an alert about every variant that has changed classification, probably, but more um, the variants that have been, say, upgraded kind of from a VUS to maybe likely pathogenic or likely pathogenic to pathogenic. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, so that's, that's what we've heard from many, many customers. They're worried about too many alerts, uh, <laughs> Also concerned about uh, their liability or, or you know, um, they want to have choice in when they review the alerts, not feel like they have to immediately act if something uh, comes up as potentially pathogenic uh, based on their commitment to uh, their customers. Um, okay, so really we're kind of getting close to, to, to being at time here. Um, but I wonder, just as a kind of a final question, is maybe you could each comment on um, what what do you think the outlook is for NGS, for germline um, sequencing coming up? Um, what changes do you think will change with, with sequencing and with interpretation in, in the next five years? Um, and how 
how do you think you can stay ahead of it or, or keep up with these expected changes? Anna? Sure, I believe that uh, in the near future, we're all going to be performing whole exome sequencing, no matter whether we want it or not. And I believe that we should be ready right now for implementing all the tools and use all the help we can get when we when we get there, when we start performing uh, these comprehensive analyses. And uh, I don't know how is it in your countries, but in Serbia, I think that almost everyone uh, can uh, pay out of pocket to perform whole exome sequencing. And they outsource it and they get back uh, to us uh, with more, you know, issues and more risks than benefits, actually. So I think we have to be ready for exomes and genomes, and we have to be ready to, um, you know, analyze more than we need to, because sometimes it's uh, all about what patients or people want. And uh, I believe that uh, we should be updated regularly and uh, just keep uh, our heads up for anything new. Thank you. Attil, do you want to continue? Uh, I actually say a little bit, a one step further, what we are going to deal with is because that's what we experience actually. For example, for the immune deficiency disorders, especially more focused when you on the rare diseases, not only the genomic data, but also the multiomics data will come into reality. Because, for example, uh, for the immune deficiencies, we already sold 30% of our patients together with whole exome sequencing with the transcriptome sequencing. So we have to perform all that. We have to find a way, not, I'm not going to say an AI, but at least an uh, AI-assisted systems to analyze all this data together and as a combined data. So I think that's going to be what we all going to do. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Lisa, do you want to add anything? Um, I would agree with both of those sentiments. As we move forward, it's not just going to be West. We're also going to be doing transcriptome and even proteomics, I think, will, you know, as large-scale efforts to try to do targeted proteomics evaluations of variants will also increase. Um, but I think in complementary to this, we have to think about the education and the genetic counseling, as Anna mentioned, because we need systems. We may be able to identify this, but if we don't have people to appropriately counsel or educate providers on what this genetic data means, um, we're going to be consistently still in a, in, a, um, in a hole where we can't provide the best health care to our patients. Um, and I guess, you know, in line with that as well is that, you know, it is going to be dependent on healthcare systems and payers. So there is still going to be reimbursement issues. We can only do um, as much as we can we do to a certain extent, and we have to make sure the healthcare systems will be able to provide this information, be able to educate the providers on this information, and make it known what the impact is of all the genetic studies and how that really impacts healthcare. Thanks. Yeah. So uh, what I'm hearing is that everybody agrees that it will be it will be more sequencing, larger sequencing incorporating more types of data, more complex types of data, um, and we need to work together then as a community, as a scientific medical payer community to try and figure out how to how to manage it to the patient's ben best benefit. Um, so hopefully, hopefully we can have a lot more discussions like this um, and and continue to, to help find solutions. Um, Dan, do you want to have any last words before we hand it back to Iman? Uh, yeah, no, I think uh, thanks. Uh, I think uh, yeah, it's a high growth uh, field. Uh, we see in Kaijin Clinical Insight, we've had over 3.5 million patient cases analyzed in, in the tool we provide. So, and we see that growing at a double digit uh, growth, um, both for for oncology tumor profiling as well as hereditary. So, uh, yeah, I think nothing more really to add. I think yeah. It's, constrained by reimbursement in different regions, but also the costs with the uh, new sequencing providers, long read uh, sequence providers um, appear to be coming down finally a, a bit, which is great, and that'll, that'll make it more um, affordable uh, for many health systems. Uh, so I'm looking forward to continuing to do our best to help meet the needs of uh, uh, clinical interpretation worldwide.
All right, Biman, I think that um, we're ready to, to hand it back over to you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Uh, that was great, like a lot of good insights. Um, before we go ahead and sort of close the event for the audience member, I'll launch a quick poll for you to take. And um, if I could sort of like request all the speakers, including you, Katie, to sort of like um, um, let us know in one one word uh, to summarize today's discussions that um, what would be your uh, like one of the top challenge analyzing in clinical, especially three sequencing uh, and exome data. And what do you think in one word, like how can we sort of overcome those challenges, right? If you have one word or a little summary for us. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll start with uh, Lisa. I don't know about one word, but knowledge is power. So I think that that's really the key here. Great. Um, Atel? Uh, what we all do is to improve our accuracy and efficiency. That's all. <laughs> okay, Anna. Okay, for me, in for integration of information <laughs> to make sense of all the data that we have in the clinical context of the patient. Sure, thank you. And Dan? Yeah. Our integrated evidence at scale, I think that's what we want. Sure. And Katie, do you want to chime in? Yeah, I would say trustworthy data interpretation, data analysis. Okay, so what I'm hearing, knowledge is power, data interpretations and integrations. That's that's awesome, really. Thank you, thank you, everyone. And then for the audience member, um, thanks for your questions. Let us get back to you with the answer very shortly. And that kind of concludes the agenda for today. Uh, I hope you all have learned something and enjoyed this very business diagnostic summit and journey through the secondary analysis, very recording conference and trust. So. Finally, I'd like to thank all of you, the speakers, Dr. Lisa Vincent, Atel Biskin, Anna Kribukutra, Dan Richardson, Catherine, Catherine Bungards for your time and invaluable inputs. I want to thank all of you, the entire audience, for joining and listening and asking questions. I hope you learned a lot, and I also wish you a great rest of the day. Please um, look for the, our next webinar, and if you want to access the recording, use the registration link uh, for the recordings. Um, that's all for today. Thank you and goodbye. Stay safe.